Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A bit later in the hour, we'll talk about how high temperatures weaken the immune system of plants and what genetics is telling us about when the first peoples arrived in the Americas. But first, unless you happen to be listening to this in Australia, you're probably a little bit warmer than usual right now, right? Temperatures are higher than normal for much of the planet And while the heat wave in Europe has garnered much attention, over 100 million Americans were under extreme heat advisories this week. Joining me now to talk about that and other selected subjects in science is Yasmin Tayag. She's a freelance science editor and writer based in New York. Welcome back to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. It's good to be back. Let's talk about this heat. Just how hot is it? Oh, it's it's hot. It's hot. <laughs> Not in a good way. Is there anywhere that's colder than usual, I guess, is what I'm looking for? Well, in Australia, it's winter, and they're experiencing some record cold. Really? Yeah. they In Melbourne, they have experienced near-freezing temperatures. And that's unusual for them? They don't usually have that? Not this cold. It's been unusual for them. And I think it's all part of this pattern of extreme weather everywhere. And, and, you know, this is not just a weather story, right? It's a story about health and infrastructure because they're all being impacted by the weather. Absolutely. You know, the health impacts of the heat especially have been really terrible, especially in Europe where, you know, societies are just not really built for this kind of heat. You know, in the UK, those houses are built to retain heat, not to let it out. And the the health issues are really being seen here at home, especially for people who don't have access to air conditioning, you know, even refrigeration in some cases. This kind of heat can be deadly. And last week, some legislation aimed at targeting climate issues was torpedoed in the Senate, in the U.S. Senate. But what is Europe doing? Well, Europe has a European Green Deal where... They're aiming to be climate neutral by 2050. And recently, they launched an additional effort to cut emissions by 55% by 2030, which is a huge goal. And that is very soon. But being put to the test right now, because with all of this heat, the demand for energy is much higher. And at the same time, there are sanctions on importing Russian energy. And the question now is, will Europe make the choice to double down on clean energy or will it just look to get gas and oil from elsewhere? Yeah, because they have been world leaders in Europe in in making the commitment to, to go green. Yeah, you know, I 
really hope that they take this opportunity to make the right choice. And I hope that will set an example for the rest of the world. Now, let's move on to some other issues. And and one in particular is that COVID is is not going away, no matter whether we want it <laughs> and wish it to do that. And this week, even President Biden has tested positive for the virus with uh, with mild symptoms, thank goodness. But there's a story about another impact of the pandemic in other drug-resistant infections. Tell us about that. Yeah, the CDC reported this week that during the pandemic, there was a huge spike in drug-resistant infections. And that, they think, was caused by the use of drugs like antibiotics early in the pandemic to treat patients. You know, doctors and nurses at that time didn't really know what they were dealing with. And so they reached for these drugs, which ended up not working. But what they did do was increase the the chances for resistance because these patients were in hospitals for so long, you know, days, weeks at a time where they were being exposed to all these common hospital bugs. And that's one of the reasons why infections seem to spike. Because they were in the hospital so long and exposed yeah. to these. That, that makes sense. So in this case, maybe the problem was too much care or health care applied in the wrong way. Yeah, I would say... It's closer to the latter, but I, you know, I really don't want to blame doctors and nurses. They were just trying to do their jobs. And, you know, March 2020, nobody knew what was going on. We were just yeah. in a panic. And, and with all the new variants, including some that appear to be more transmissible, we are seeing upticks in the infection numbers. And you have a piece out this week in The Atlantic asking whether people who haven't been infected yet are more at risk yeah. The question that I pose to myself is, are people who haven't had COVID yet sitting ducks? And I think of these people as COVID virgins. My fiance is one, so it was a very personal issue. Uh, and it's personal to me because I'm one of those also. I wanted to hear the answer. <laughs> well, hopefully this will be somewhat encouraging news. The data suggest that people who haven't COVID yet are quite vulnerable right now because so many of the infections happening right now are first infections. However, none of the experts I spoke to would say outright that people who are COVID virgins are more at risk. And that's because everyone right now is at risk. There are a lot of reinfections happening now, which suggests that natural immunity isn't holding up against these new variants. As a result, people who have had COVID before may not actually be more protected than people who have never had COVID. So the guidance that experts gave applies to everybody. And it's the same stuff we've always known. Get vaccinated, get boosted, get your second booster if you can. I think Biden just had his, which I think is setting a good example for everyone, especially people in his age group. And if you're vulnerable or elderly, avoid crowded environments and wear a mask. You know, as one of these virgins that you talk about, I'm almost tempted to say, hey, let me get the virus now while my immunity is up because I'm double boosted and I'm still in the middle of my high boost period because if I wait till October when maybe 
my booster runs out and then get infected, it will be worse for me then if there's not the third booster around. It's tempting, right? It's tempting to be fatalistic right now, especially because we're all just so tired and fed up with all of these behaviors that we're told to do. But there are still so many good reasons to try to not get COVID. Chief of them is that I think people forget how bad illness can be even if you are vaccinated and boosted. You know, sure, you're not going to end up in the hospital, but it can still put you out for a couple of days. And I think the other major thing people need to be thinking about is the specter of long COVID. It's still so poorly understood and it can get anyone, even if you have a mild or asymptomatic infection. And lastly, again, we don't know how protective natural immunity is against these new variants. So even if you get sick now, you might still get reinfected later this year. Yeah, that's what's keeping my vigilance up, all those reasons. Let's move on to something a bit lighter, (laughs) Uh, a story about elephant trunks. How, How can you get lighter than this? Elephant trunks and how they move? Yeah, it's a delightful study, and I'm so happy that someone out there is studying this. So you think of elephant trunks as just this long, muscular thing that, you know, can pick up branches and and leaves. But what the scientists found is that it's not just muscle that helps it do what it does, but also its skin. And so this might be surprising because you think of elephant skin as just, you know, wrinkly and uniform. But in reality, it's not. The skin on an elephant's trunk depends on where it is. The skin on the top of the trunk, for example, is different and more flexible than the skin on the bottom. And this all feeds into a greater understanding of how the trunk itself moves. So instead of stretching uniformly like a tongue, the trunk moves more like a telescope. So the tip will always move first in order to reach something, followed by the adjacent segment. And the last part to move is the part closest to the face. The scientists hypothesize that this happens because elephants are lazy and the part closest to the face has a lot of muscle. So moving it takes a ton of effort. And so in order to reach something, they would much rather use the tip of their trunk, which has fewer muscles and is a lot easier to move. I get it. If I were the size of an elephant, probably I'd do that also. Um, (laughs) um, Finally, genetic research and how penguins became able to live in the cold. Uh, I I love penguins and I want to hear the answer. How did they they adapt to the cold? Yeah, I mean, the genetic analysis pinpointed these genes that are responsible for some very key features for living in extreme cold. But I want to back up and mention what I found to be the most interesting part of this research, which is that penguins were not always cold adapted. They used to live around the equator, which was news to me. I can't even imagine seeing a warm weather penguin. When they lost their ability to fly about 60 million years ago, they just kind of became land animals and fossils have been found all along the equator. And over time, they gained all these new um, mutations that allowed them to adapt to cold climates. So some interesting ones were genes that control the amount of fat that they can store or genes that helped turn their 
non-functional little wings into flippers that were way more functional right. for the water. Right. The one I found most interesting was the fact that their taste buds are, they can only taste salty and sour, which the scientists say is really helpful if all you eat is fish. You know, with climate change and the melting of all the ice in Antarctica, you hope that the penguins are going to make it, just like you worry about the polar bears in the North Pole. Yeah, you know, I think what the study really shows is that penguins have shown an amazing ability to evolve and adapt. And what they really need is time, just like all the animals just need time to evolve, and they will. What I hope that we can do is give them that time. Yeah, let's hope that the time is on their side. Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you, Ira. Yasmin Tayag, freelance science editor and writer based in New York. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, how genetics are filling in gaps in the story of when people first came to the Americas and why that arrival keeps looking earlier and earlier. Stay with us. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. When you were in elementary school learning about the peopling of the Americas, I'll bet you heard a story that goes something like this. 13,000 years ago, glaciers from the last ice age were just starting to melt across North America. And a group of people from what is now Asia crossed into North America by a land bridge through what is now the Bering Sea, and they found a path through the ice to North America. Anthropologists called them the Clovis people, and we know they were here because they left very distinct spear tips all over the continent. And for a long time, we assumed they were the first people to arrive. And then... Hey, hey, Ira. Hey, wait. Wait a second. Oh, hi. Sci-Fi is Christy Taylor. Uh, am I telling it wrong? Well, so unfortunately, the real picture is actually pretty complicated and involves some disagreements among scientists. But what many archaeologists are starting to think is actually that the first peoples, the ancestors of indigenous people in the Americas, were here much earlier than previously thought. And I'm talking thousands of years before that 13,000 number you just threw out. Also, they think the Clovis people weren't the first people here. Really? Where is all this new evidence coming from? Well, some of it is from older archaeological sites that have been found recently with evidence of human habitation. But a lot of it is also genetics. We're getting better and better tools for sequencing DNA and extracting very old DNA from people's remains. Wow, this is much more interesting than what I was talking about. Fill us in on the rest of the story. Yeah, I talked to Dr. Jennifer Raff. She's an anthropological geneticist at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. And she's the author of the book Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas, which came out earlier this year. We started by talking about how the timeline of human arrival is changing thanks to the introduction of DNA evidence. In the genetic record, we can see that there were splits between populations of ancestral Native Americans that coincide with or, or date to just after the beginning of the melting of the ice sheet that once covered most of northern North America. So these splits take place 
after 17,000 years ago, these branches diverge very, very rapidly, which is a signal of rapid population movement across a landscape that's you know, likely devoid of other people. Um, and so the genetic record shows that occurring much earlier than, than the Clovis peoples. In addition to that, the archaeological record shows candidates for early archaeological sites that date between 14 and 16,000 years ago. What these approaches are telling us is a really fascinating story of a population that emerged from two previous populations, one in East Asia and one in Northern Siberia. There's a lot of blanks we still have to fill in, but these two populations um, encountered one another during the peak of the last glacial maximum or just before. And this this climate event um, really peaked between about 26 and 20,000 years ago. And so we see evidence for gene flow between these two populations somewhere. We don't know where exactly they encountered each other. And then they become isolated for a period of a few thousand years. And this period of isolation is when they evolve genetic variants that are unique to the peoples of the Americas. And there are so many aspects to that story that I've just told you that, that we really can't answer yet. I mean, overall, what can genes tell us that the archaeological sites themselves, you know, bones, settlements, spear tips, what can genes tell us that those can't? So what genetics tells us is biological history. Looking at genomes of individuals can tell us how closely they're related, how closely they're related to past populations and to global populations. And we can also look at genetic evidence and use it based on population genetics. We can estimate things like population size changes in the past. We can estimate the dates at which two populations last shared a common ancestor. We can look at how natural selection has affected populations and other forces of evolution, genetic drift and mutation and gene flow. And so from all of these data, we can build models about the past and use those models as a test of, of archaeological data. So I think that really the most powerful approach is to integrate archaeology and genetics as best as one can uh, and try to come up with um, the most comprehensive story of, of history that we can that matches both data sets. It's not easy at all. It really is not. <laughs> It sounds like it. Well, and you don't even have just one data set because you're talking about both ancient remains of people who died thousands of years ago and the DNA from their descendants, you know, indigenous people in the Americas today, right? How how do those two sets of genealogies complement each other as well? Well, it can be really tricky because, of course, we want to avoid defining who is Native American in genetic terms, right? And present-day indigenous peoples of the Americas are genetically variable. They have ancestry from many different populations. A lot of this ancestry comes from European contact and colonization processes that took place after 1492. And so it can complicate trying to reconstruct histories of the deep past, the very, very ancient histories. A lot of times to look at the stories of those ancestors, one has to look mostly at ancient DNA. And Right now, we have a very limited sampling of genomes across the Americas um, from these ancient ancestors. And there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. It's a lot of ethics, a lot of history that 
geneticists really need to take into account and be sensitive to when we're doing our work. Let's visit your lab virtually. You have received a new genome. What do you do with it? What happens? The process of our research always starts with the tribe or the the, the descendant community and talking to them about what questions they have, what would they be interested in, in looking at, and bringing to them the questions that we might be interested in, and coming to an agreement before we even bring any ancestral remains into the lab, that's, that we always get that worked out first. What, what can we do and how should we handle these remains? And we bring that sample into our isolation facility at the University of Kansas. And that facility has a positive pressure and all the other um, attributes of an ancient DNA lab. So everything mm-hmm. is covered in bleach. Everything is, <laughs> we, we are very, very careful about what we bring into the lab and how we work in it to preserve as much as possible a DNA-free environment, or at least an environment free of contemporary human DNA. And that sample is then bleached and the surface of it, if it's bone or tooth, is removed and the process of DNA extraction begins, which um, is a long and complicated and multi-day process and takes a lot of patience on the part of the the worker to, to do this in a way that does not contaminate it with their own DNA. You're extracting the DNA, you're sequencing it, what are the things you're looking for in the sequence? So it, again, really depends on what kinds of questions that we have agreed to with the community that we're working with. We are in our lab group also very interested in the very earliest peopling of the Americas. And so if the community finds it appropriate, then we will look for how does the genome that we're working with here fit with existing models of um, the of population history of these earliest peoples? We're also interested in really small-scale relationships between individuals buried in the same cemetery, relationships between different groups who may have been trading partners, and was their gene flow accompanying that trading relationship? Can we see the effects of European contact in, in these populations? Do we see evidence for uh, gene flow from European populations or other populations? Or can we see the impact of European contact on population size changes in, in these groups? Um, we, are, we are really interested in everything that one can learn from uh, genetic relationships. I want to go back to some of the ethical questions that you talk about in this book, origin. You know, we're not talking about a story of people in a vacuum, but one that involves people who are still alive today and people who have been exploited both in the process of colonization and by scientists who are looking for exactly the story you're trying to tell. You know, it was really important to me as I wrote this book that I not only explained what we think we know today, but how we came to those scientific understandings. And this history of our discipline, and it's not just genetics, it's archaeology, it's anthropology, it's, um, you know, scientific study in general. Um, This history is deeply rooted in colonialism and centuries of exploitation of indigenous peoples. And it's really important that the process of consultation is a process of obtaining permission. It's also a process of making sure the community is aware of all the implications that work can, can have for them and soliciting from them the, the, the parameters for how to do research. So in the past, many scientists have not understood, I think that many non-native scientists have not understood that these ancestral remains are sacred they're people and the you know and and doing work in the way that we do it it can it can damage the remains it can it can actually um, go against 
the ways in which some tribes view the dead. And, and so to do this work respectfully, it's absolutely necessary that one talks to present day communities about the ways in which one can handle the, these ancestral remains and, and what is okay to do and what is not okay to do. And throughout the history of our field, unfortunately, that sensitivity has not been there. This field has really changed in the last, I would say, decade really, really changed. And that's in large part thanks to the leadership of Indigenous peoples who have really educated non-Native scientists on these issues. But we still have a long way to go, I think. And uh, I am hoping that by bringing this discussion to the public, it will be a little bit more accessible and a little bit people will understand a little bit more the issues involved. Well, and I guess a follow-up to that, and and that is just why is it important for scientists to establish this story of people arriving in the Americas? You know, how how and when humans first made their homes here? Would it materially change the lives of those people's descendants? That's a really good question, and it's one that I think about a lot. There are a couple of different ways to answer it. One way is to say that to understand the genetic history of humans globally is to help inform our understanding of the processes which have shaped genetic variation in present-day communities. And understanding that evolutionary history can have real importance for medical research. And uh, again, with caution and with care, because Indigenous peoples have had, as other marginalized people, a very long history of exploitive medical research as well. So that's one answer to your question. But another one is there are a, there is a lot of bad information out there about history. <laughs> Quite often, this um, alternative history is extremely racist or at least is used for racist purposes to deny the sovereignty of indigenous peoples by saying, well, they weren't the first people in the Americas or it was really Europeans or, you know, ancient people from other parts of the world. So genetics can show us, for example, that the first peoples of the Americas are the direct ancestors of present day indigenous peoples. I mean, that's, you know, one fundamental thing. But it can also, in concert with with archaeology, show us that these first peoples got here very early, much, much earlier than I think most people realize, most non-natives, let me correct myself, because Indigenous peoples will be like, yes, we know our ancestors have been here a long time. But it is actually a shame that we have to confirm this with genetic data for some people to believe it. But it's it's really fascinating. And what's been interesting to me is in looking at these new stories that 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 are emerging from genetics is how these origins are getting pushed back earlier and earlier and so you know very early in the history of archaeology there was an argument about whether the first peoples were even ancestors to native americans but and then it was well they've only been here 5000 years and then it was well they've only been here 13000 years and now we're saying before 15000 years and even adding to that now, we, there's a site that was just published um, in, in New Mexico, the White Sands site, that shows evidence of human footprints potentially dating as early as 21 to 23,000 years ago, which means, wow. yeah, and so we have to now look at that evidence and say, okay, and I will say uh, there are a lot of archaeologists who disagree with the dating methods used, but if those dating methods hold up, 
you know, what does that mean for our field? How do we incorporate that into our models? How does that intersect with genetics right now? Um, and how can we how can we reconcile all these different data sets? And so I think that this study, as long as it's done carefully and with sensitivity to indigenous people's perspectives and respect for their own histories, you know, transmitted orally for generations and generations. Um, if we can do this work respectfully and in a good way, I think it can benefit indigenous communities, if only to push back on some of these narratives. And then again, though, they shouldn't need the scientific confirmation of this, right? But but there there it is, yeah. Just a quick reminder, this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking to Jennifer Raff, author of the book Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas. Your book is called Origin, which refers to the beginning of a people, of a history. Do you think we'll ever know the entire story? No, I don't think we'll ever know the whole story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I, I am optimistic that we will get closer and closer. But by far, the majority of archaeologists and geneticists, including myself, um, interpret the evidence as showing people present in the Americas by at least 16, 17,000 years ago, or perhaps if White Sands holds up, if the dates hold up, maybe there were people here even as early as 25,000 years ago. Um, how we reconcile those dates is going to be uh, a fascinating conversation over the next few years. And I hope that my book kind of provides a framework for people to understand where that conversation is going and, and what it implies. So we should all be setting Google alerts for White Sands. Yes, I think so. It's it's one of the most exciting <laughs> <laughs> sites that has been published recently, I think. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Jennifer Raff is an anthropological geneticist at the University of Kansas in Lawrence and the author of the book Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas. I'm Christy Taylor. Thank you, Christy. And if you want to hear more about the revolutions in genetics driving our understanding of history, you can read an excerpt of Jennifer's book, Origin, on our website, sciencefriday.com origin. Once again, sciencefriday.com origin. And if you need more summer reading suggestions, I suggest this pick from Sci-Fi Book Club listener, Ophelia. I'm reading The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. Absolutely fascinating and a must-read for anyone interested in RNA and how bacteria taught us how to fight viruses. You can join the Sci-Fi Book Club for more recommendations from readers like you. Find out what we're reading next and join our online community space, all at sciencefriday.com slash book club. After the break, it's hot out there and getting hotter, and that's bad for a plant's immune system. But help may be on the way. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. In India and Pakistan, temperatures topped 120 degrees Fahrenheit earlier this spring and then stayed above 100 degrees for three consecutive months. Of course, you know that Europe is currently sizzling under similar temperatures, record-breaking in many countries. And as climate change continues, we're only going to see more heat waves like these, which is dangerous for human health, sure, but another concerning effect of deadly heat, plants, including food crops we depend on, have weaker immune systems when it's hotter, 
which means more diseases wiping out harvests. Worrisome on a warming planet, yes, but researchers are working on solutions. Research published in Nature last month offers one option, a gene editing solution to keep crops healthy even at high temperatures. With me is Dr. Senyung Hee, a professor of biology at Duke University and investigator at Howard Hughes Medical Institute and an author of this new research. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. He. Thank you very much for having me on the show. You're welcome. Can you give us some plant immune systems 101 first? <laughs> sure. Plants actually have a very powerful immune system. Uh, it's actually similar to uh, a major branch of immune system that humans and some other uh, animals have. It's called innate immunity. Uh, what it is is that plants have these uh, immune receptors that can recognize all sorts of pathogens and insects, actually. And once that uh, recognition occurs, plants will produce defense hormones, including a hormone that um, in this study we uh, focus on quite a bit, salicylic acid. And so this hormone basically amplifies other cellular uh, immune responses to make plants resistant to pathogen and, and insect. Yeah, so plants don't have the antibody system that we have. But still, plants have, you know, exist on Earth for hundreds of millions of years, so uh, much longer than humans and many animals. So I think the plant immune system is very powerful uh, against diseases. That immune, that immune response sounded a lot like aspirin. Yeah, yeah. Salicylic acid is actually a very uh, closely related compound. Aspirin, in fact, aspirin was invented based on the salicylic acid, you know, uh, old days. Humans uh, uh, chew the uh, willow bark uh, that contain a lot of salicylic acid. That's where the aspirin was initially uh, discovered. And so we take aspirin, yeah, for a lot of human conditions, but plants actually make their own medicine. So when it gets hotter, do they produce more of this or do they not and just wilt or get sick? So actually, it turns out when it's hot, uh, the plants that used to the cold, cool weather condition like Europe, you know, part of Asia or North America, uh, like a lot of vegetables or oil seeds, they actually don't like uh, hot temperature either. So they produce less salicylic acid. And because of that, the whole plant immune system is uh, kind of suppressed. And so they are more prone to uh, pathogens and insect attack. So are there any particular kinds of diseases that uh, might be most damaging? Yeah, so uh, salicylic acid control uh, plant immune response to a large group of pathogens we call biotrophic. These pathogens like living cells. Some insects also like living cells. So salicylic acid is really important for plant defense against these type of pathogens, like uh, aphids, for instance. And so these diseases are particularly uh, uh, controlled by salicylic acid. Mm -hmm. And what role does it play in temperature response? Um, it controls immune response. Uh, it doesn't control, you know, the uh, growth or flowering. And these are other issues that, you know, plant scientists are working very hard, try to uh, produce a new generation of so-called heat-tolerant crops that allow plants to grow in warmer, you know, uh, regions or hot weather. In fact, the breeders uh, normally focus on growth and fruits and, you know, flowering. Uh, but our research suggests that we should now pay attention to the plant immune system as well because it's very susceptible to uh, uh, warm temperature. You know, you can grow all the plants you want to if the immune system is not strong or resilient. 
and you know we're not going to get to the expected yield. So could we expect that climate change and, and global warming as it heats up is going to wipe out some food crops? That is a prediction. Actually, it's, we're very concerned about that. One reason is that you know a lot of crop plants don't flower at the time they're supposed to flower. You probably noticed that the spring is very warm. A lot of fruit trees flower really fast. And so then uh, you know a freezing temperature comes in to kill other uh, flowers. A lot of time you don't even have a fruit that year. And the same can happen for uh, food crops and vegetables, especially cool weather crops will have a series of challenges uh, going forward. And you've been working on genes, testing different genes for a potential solution using gene editing that lets plants keep making the chemicals they need to fight disease. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's the uh, the main focus of the work. So once we find that salicylic acid is not produced enough, we want to know why, you know, why it's not producing enough. After many, many failed experiments, as you know, science like that, we uh, eventually realized that actually a, a gene we call uh, CB60G, but it doesn't, it's not important. This gene actually functions as like an immune master switch. At warm temperature, it turns out, this gene is not turned on for some reason. And then, so once we figure out that, we basically did a repair experiment, modified a part of this gene to be temperature insensitive. So now the plant is able to switch on this master uh, immune genes and then make salicylic acid and other uh, defense systems allow plants to actually resist pathogen even at warm temperature. So I think this is the one solution Obviously, there's uh, additional solutions we and others exploring uh, to basically make plants resilient uh, to temperature so that they won't get sick. Amazing. Well, can you give me the range of plants that this gene might help? Yeah, so we only worked on a particular plant called Arabidopsis, okay? Now, not that important to remember the name, but this is like a lab rat for plant research. That's the old mustard plant, right? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of scientists want to use this one because it's a typical plant, obviously, has all the you know traits that it has. But uh, there's a lot of knowledge and uh, uh, resources available to make uh, a discovery fast. Uh, it is also relative of uh, vegetables we eat. So that's what we are working on. But you know, obviously, you want to know whether the phenomenon you discovered is also occurring in crop plants. Uh, fortunate to us, the gene. The, the, the immune master switch that we find is actually in all plants. So it's a pretty widespread. And we also tested the several crops like tomato, rice, uh, rapeseed. The salicylic acid uh, system is also compromised at warm temperature. So this is a pretty uh, pervasive uh, phenomenon in, in plants, including crop plants. How much of a difference did it make when you were able to turn on that master gene how much difference does, does it make in the plant fighting off all its enemies? Yeah, so uh, for instance, the plants around us work was usually about 20, 21, 23 degrees. That's what we normally do. We uh, increase temperature to five, you know, by five degrees to 28. So normally plants become really sick because the immune system is down. The uh, modified plants we have are able to fight as well as the normal plants would at the uh, lower temperature. So we haven't tested the limit of temperature we can go. In general, uh, uh, the, we and others really want plants to have this robust temperature resilience, not only in the immune response, but also 
you know, setting the fruits and the flower time to be more resilient to temperature uh, differences. So we can grow crops not only in one location, but in all over the world, right? You know, right now you, you heard about the importation, transportation, a lot of political issues that make the uh, global food security an issue. Can you imagine that we can all grow food crop any way we want to? And that will really dramatically uh, uh, improve the condition we have. So that's what we're aiming for the, as a community of plant scientists. Can you can you tweak up the system and, and amplify the immune system rather than just bring it back up to park and you strengthen it? Yeah, you can do this easily. Uh, we we've done this in the laboratory. Uh, you know, uh, we and others. The problem with that is uh, um, once you do that, uh, plants actually cannot deal with uh, perfectly because. Essentially, there's a phenomenon called defense and growth trade-off, that if you devote too much energy to one thing, the other part of your system doesn't work very well. So you can hike up the uh, defense uh, very high or you know, all the time. Plants actually become very small. And so that's not good. That's not what we want, right? We want still a lot of fluids, you know, a lot of biomass. And so there's a balance we need to achieve. We need to make sure that defense only up when we need it to. Uh, and we need a level of defense that's just enough so that we don't want to divert energy from other part of the plant life that it needs to cover. Yeah, I know, because I know that herbicides work by tr getting the plant to grow too quickly and it kills the plant. So you don't want to do that. Uh, I mean, how should we be thinking about the role of GMOs in our food system? I mean, this is going to be a genetically modified plant. I know some people are uneasy about them, but won't we need to consume more GMOs in our future diets if we're going to fight climate change? Yeah, so I, there are two answers to this. So our eventual goal is not to use GMO uh, to this very uh, early stage. What we want is really to find some alleles that are really uh, in, the, in nature and by uh, then introduce into the uh, cultivar, like what conventional breeding is. So the goal is not to uh, make GMO. However, as a scientist, uh, I know GMO is very safe. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably more safe than some of the natural food we eat. Uh, and uh, I think public will eventually realize that GMO food is as safe as natural food. But again, you know, this is a, a debate that we're going to have for a long time. And uh, we should allow different opinions, uh, different choices. Uh, again, the, the goal of the scientist is to find as natural uh, approach as we can, uh, but at the same time to uh, come up with more nutritious and safe and flavorful, affordable food uh, that we can all uh, eat or continue to eat, uh, even though we're going to live in a very hot and harsh climate. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Let's talk about the science here a bit. We talked about how temperatures impact the plant's immune system. What about all the other impacts of the climate crisis like drought, flooding, humidity? How might the plants fare against these? Yeah, yeah. What you want is to make a plant to be able to uh, resist uh, you know, high temperature, drought, and high salinity. And these are all associated with climate change. Uh, which uh, we should pursue that as a community, obviously. But in reality, you don't need to have a particular culture that resists to all kinds of uh, stress because we still grow plants, crop plants, in a regional basis. So in this region, you know, maybe the hot temperature is the main issue. In another region, like in California or something, you know, drought is a problem. So we need to create a, 
a library of uh, elite cultivars that can be grown in different places. And I think that's what we want to do. But yeah, drought, salinity uh, are major problems. While you're worrying about the health of the plants and, and something that you should be worrying about, what about the health of the soil in climate change and the climate crisis, the microbes, the microbiome in the soil? Yeah, the temperature and drought, especially salinity, has a huge uh, effect on microbiome, both the, you know, the kind of microbiome they're going to live there and how they actually function. Microbiome is such a critical component of plant health, so uh, affecting microbiome could indirectly affect plant health. Uh, this is called holobiome. You know, plants are not really just plant itself. It's actually living with a microbiome. And so microbiome can uh, be a solution uh, because a lot of times microbiome can actually uh, boost plant health and make plants more resilient to temperature and drought without actually our need to modify plant gen genome. So this is another non-GMO solution that we and others are looking at. So, that is uh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's and crazy. Then, that's that's terrific. It is crazy. It's very complex. And so it would take a while to figure out uh, uh, like a probiotic for plants, for instance. And, and so but uh, our colleagues, uh, my colleagues are working really hard on this. That's great. You know, we talked just a couple of weeks ago about the failures of wheat crops, both in the U.S. and globally this year. It seems like protecting food from climate change is increasingly urgent. I'm sure you would agree. When can we expect to see more temperature-resistant crops? When will you get some of your research to market, do you think? Right. So, you know, it, it, as a scientist, I don't want to speculate too precisely because a lot of things are out of our control. Uh, but we want to, you know, obviously bring this in if we are well-funded, uh, you know, to continue to work on this. Uh, uh, right now, the results are in the laboratory, but we want to uh, take this in the field testing will take a few years. I would say within 10 years or so, the technology should be ready, right? Uh, and whether, how many, you know, uh, farmers are going to use it, that's kind of another level of complexity that is not really uh, solvable by science alone. You have to have a policy change and think of all of that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we, we do our best to bring the technology or the knowledge at least uh, to people that this is actually feasible uh, um, if we continue to invest. But, you know, it, as a worldwide, we need a, uh, I always say, a global Manhattan project where governments, you know, put in really a lot of funding because agriculture is going to be a huge uh, critical issue for human survival. I mean, we're seeing it, as you said, climate change is here already. You need, like, a you know, big consortium of people really dedicated to address this Manhattan project uh, level of uh, uh, effort to solve all these problems, temperature, drought, salinity, you know, uh, food security. I think this is the time to do it. Well, from your mouth to the world government's ears, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Ira. Nice talking to you. Dr. Sen Young hee professor of biology at Duke University, and investigator at Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And a special thanks to Mackenzie White, our AAAS fellow this summer, who produced this interview. One last thing before we go. Are you a plover lover? Now, don't take it the wrong way. I mean, are you ready to tiptoe through the tide with us? Well, it suns out, puns out at our virtual trivia night this Wednesday, July 27th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. 
Join us for an online quiz show all about our favorite beach birds, the piping plovers. RSVP on our website, sciencefriday.com slash trivia. And here's Kyle Marin Viterbo with some of the folks who helped make this show happen. Annie Nero is our individual giving manager. Nahima Ahmed is our manager of impact strategy. Dee Peterschmidt is our digital producer. And I'm community manager, Kyle Marion Viterbo. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Kyle. BJ Liederman composed our theme music. And if you missed any part of the program or you would like to hear it again, yes, subscribe to our podcast or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You can always email us, scifry at sciencefriday.com. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato.